Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I'm your host, Ness in Birmingham. I'm delighted to welcome back Jim Birchinoff to Between the Biotech Waves. Jim is Vice Chair of Wells Fargo Biopharmaceutical Investment Banking. In 2022, Jim joined the podcast to discuss the market dynamics and learnings from prior market corrections. I'm welcoming him back to take stock of where we are, what are the bright spots in 2022, and crystal ball gaze into 23. What should we be watching as the start of the year unfolds? Please join me in welcoming Jim back. Jim, great to have you back. You know, it's always fascinating to talk to you, given the experience that you've had both on the equity side, but also on the banking side, um, and the perspective that you have now through multiple cycles uh, in the biotech industry. You know, obviously it was, you know, you joined me last year and we talked a lot about sort of themes that we were seeing in the marketplace, some of the things that management teams needed to do, and the sort of general market dynamic that was taking place in 22, and so some of the predictions you had for the second half of 22. Now we're here January 23, you know, should we stay under the covers or is it time to get out of bed, shower, you know, drink some coffee and get moving in the biotech sector? Yeah, Ness, and, and, and great to join you again. And, and I, I do think, you know, it, it is time as we head into a new year to, um, to take the covers off and, and get back, back out there. Uh, you know, a lot of the work that's had to get done um, in returning the biotech sector to a healthier footing, I, I think is getting done. Um, I think we're entering 2023 with a better footing than we had entering 2022. Um, you know, I would say from, from the last time we spoke, the, the downturn has persisted a little longer than one would have expected. Uh, you know, typically we have these gaps in equity issuance that last 16 to 18 months. And we're now, now going on two years where investors have largely sat on their hands um, and, um, and we've tried to figure out for, you know, a lot of companies that are, you know, underfunded, how do we solve for that? But, but again, I think the work that's needing to get done is getting done. Uh, I think we're in a healthier position heading into 2023. And, and the big thing is innovation isn't slowing down. If anything, it's accelerating. And I think fundamentally, notwithstanding some of the challenging market environments we saw last year, we saw a lot of progress for the sector across a large number of categories. Uh, and a real, you know, real evidence that this acceleration of innovation is producing real drugs, which is, which is exciting for me. So like, just pause you for one sec, because I want to get into the innovation and some of the things that, you know, I've talked about as we look at sort of key catalysts and emerging areas now from a data standpoint. But when we talked last, it was the cycle has been going on um, beyond the norm for duration. And this was like six months ago. And here we are, we're still in it. Do we, like, what, why is it going on so long? Are there indicators that are telling us that it's starting to change from a macro standpoint? Um, like, why, why should we believe now versus six months ago? Yeah, no, and it, a great question. And look, I think there's been a convergence of a lot of negative factors. I think fundamentally, when I think about the cycles of biotech that you and I have tracked for the last 25 years, you have a wave of innovation. You have new companies formed around that innovation. There's a process of digestion, uh, and then you get a recovery as things get sorted out. And I think in this case, we really had too many companies that went public before they were ready. Um, there was, uh, the, you know, the greatest number of new companies formed uh, in the history of biotech. And as opposed to a process of digestion, we've had this process of indigestion. Uh, I'm optimistic that we're we're getting through it. 
Um, because some of the metrics I look at, I, I think, are, are positive. One of the things I would note is that if you look at companies with a, a negative enterprise value trading below cash, we had over 200 companies that were in that situation in the first half of 22. And as we exited the second half of 22, there's 149 companies in, in that area. So still, you know, that's roughly 20% of the sector that's still at a distress valuation. Uh, but it's improving. And again, you know, as I stated at the beginning, the work that needs to get done to deal with that is getting done. And we could talk about what those things are. You know, I would say the other thing is we're seeing uh, more positive reactions to data catalysts. Uh, if you go back to February of 2021 and the first quarter of 21, it was roughly a 60-40 split in terms of positive to negative reactions. That turned, that flipped the other way for the last nearly 24 months, and now it's flipping in the fourth quarter of 22 uh, to more positive again. Um, and, and so it's, it's 60-40 again, positive to negative. Uh, you know, I, I would say the macro headwinds are something that uh, have to be dealt with, but at the same time, there's a lot of negative baked in. And I would say historically, when we look at biotech, uh, it, it actually tends to outperform during economic downturns where growth is harder to find in other areas. So I actually think the, the macro environment could become, go from being a headwind to a tailwind. And then on the geopolitical side, there was a lot of uncertainty going into the midterm elections. And what we've emerged with is a split House and Senate. Um, and that gives you legislative inertia uh, and, and puts us in a position where we, we may have the status quo, which isn't necessarily bad for biotech. So you know, from a macro perspective, I think a lot of negative is baked in. From a geopolitical perspective, uh, you know, you can't rule out that the situation in Ukraine doesn't get worse. Uh, but but a lot of that is, is reflected as well. We think the, the geopolitical landscape broadly is supportive of biotech recovery. And, and the biggest issue that we've been dealing with, and that's just uh, a large number of underfunded companies, is getting dealt with. And so I, I think there's still work to do in the first half of 22, uh, sorry, the first half of 23, but I'm optimistic that, that that work is getting done and will continue to get done. So a lot to unpack there. Like, just starting with the actual number of companies that have 12 months or less of cash in the books from 200 down to 149. So you 51 that got funded there. When you look at how the performance of those 51 post fundraise, have you seen a recovery? Have you seen them actually, you know, generate returns for those investors? And, you know, can you, can you start to get a sense as to what, from a percentage standpoint, that overhang from a lack of capital actually has been uh, just looking at those 51 odd companies? Yeah. So, um, you know, a couple of things. So, you know, we look at the sector today and roughly 650 companies on the public side and roughly 150 of them have distressed valuation, so they're trading below cash, there's actually 250 that have distressed runways where they're approaching 12 months of cash. And so, you know, what we've seen is uh, a number of things to try and deal with that. And it's taken, it, it's gone beyond just a traditional fundraising. You know, what we've seen is reverse mergers, mergers of equals, uh, royalty-backed finance and uh, other structured finance. Um uh, options being pursued, monetization of assets, uh, but companies are doing, um, making the tough choice and doing dilutive financings. And, and what we're seeing is when you solve for the cash runway, mm -hmm. uh, companies tend to perform better. 
and, and what we've seen when we do our analysis, and I mentioned, mentioned this last time, is if you look at cash runways from 6 to 12 to 18 to 24 months of cash, the companies that have 18 to 24 months of cash, cash disproportionately outperform those with, with, with less than 15 months of cash. And so, you know, I think the data supports that cash runways are critical. And, and for us, the dividing line is you want to have more than 15 months of cash, ideally 18 to 24 months of cash. And as companies are, are solving for their runway, we're seeing them in a better position to react positively to stock events. And is, is that actual volume driven as investors are selling and buying, or is it is it some other metric? Like, because I, I always find it's hard to know from a, from a pure valuation standpoint. You got your raise cash, more obviously more shares now in the marketplace. But are you actually starting to see this requisite sort of trading that's now taking place around that stock also that really is reflecting that value proposition now that that is in the company? Yeah, I think it's um, yet to be determined um you know again the metric we'll look at is just around milestones how do stocks perform at different points along the cash runway and we do see companies that have more extended runways and those who have kept their cash position between 18 to 24 months or greater you know performing better um you know i i would say for companies that are in a distressed value perspective and they've got a cash runway to solve for and they're considering a highly dilutive financing, uh, you know, it, will a dilutive financing create value creation over the longer term? You know, we'll, we'll need to see that borne out. But I would say a lot of companies are um, accessing a currency that really puts them in a better position to realize the value of their pipeline. Uh, again, the, the short-term perspective is companies trade better when they've got balance sheets beyond 15 months, um, we will see as, as companies are making the difficult decisions to access capital, and they're doing it in many ways in, in non-dilutive ways, but even when they do a dilutive financing, you know, our view is it, it sets them up for the, the multiplier effect down the road. They're, they're, they're going to get the, the um, outsized returns where if they don't solve for the runway, it, it's really just you know, heading straight down for the most part. And when you look at the financings that were done latter half of 22 and predicting obviously into 23, are they the sort of onerous term type financings that we've seen historically where you're looking at large warrant coverage, you know, in the money, or are they actually more sort of reasonable and, you know, pragmatic as you think about those type of investments and setting the company up for success much further down the line? Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's a couple of things there, Ness. You know, one, again, if we say there's 650 public companies and 250 are in a distressed cash runway position approaching 12 months of cash, there's 400 companies that actually have healthy balance sheets. And, uh, you know, a large number of them had positive events and were able to raise substantial capital off of those events. If you restrict yourself to the 250 companies that are still trying to solve for the runway, um, you know, some of them have to uh, do the, you know, the stress value financing with, you know, significant warrant coverage. Uh, but we're seeing other companies doing, you know, more creative things. They're merging with peers. They're um, considering a roll-up of a category. They're looking at their assets and considering spinning out some of those business units or assets. 
uh, they're looking for partnership. Uh, they may be the focus of M&A, not only from large pharma, but of small, other small mid-cap peers that are in a healthier position. And so there is, certainly is, um, you know, at the end of the day, financings that are being done with, um, you know, substantial warrant coverage and, and a fair amount of dilution. But I would say what encouraged me as we head into 2023 is the creativity that's being brought to bear to try and get companies in a healthier situation in the, in the least dilutive way. One of the ways we talked about that, not from a dilutive standpoint, but making healthier companies was this concept of consolidation um, and one plus one equals three. And the last time we talked, the have you seen that re, be realized? And to the extent that it's been realized, have we seen it actually be productive and the market respond to it? Uh, and is it to the extent that you would have expected or you had expected middle of last year? Yeah, you know, without getting into specific details, I, I would say we have seen some peer-to-peer mergers where this idea of, you know, one company has the cash runway and the capabilities and the other company might have some assets but not the same runway or capabilities and you put them together, we're seeing those kind of transactions, you know, relatively well received. Um, it, it's just starting. Um, I expect to see more of that as we go into 2023, but there are a number of categories that have become crowded. We've, we've seen, you know, in gene therapy, in cell therapy, in immuno-oncology, um, you know, a, a fairly crowded landscape. And that's where we're starting to see some consolidation. And anecdotally, we're seeing that well-received by investors. You know, we'll need to watch out over the longer term to see how that plays out. But I would say what I'm very confident in is when you bring two companies together and you have a combined longer cash runway, a greater burden of assets, a density of clinical milestones, and you're able to pick, you know, the both the best of both teams in terms of clinops and, and other things that are important to execution, you've got a stronger currency and a stronger company to advance uh, innovation. Um, and, and so, again, I, I think it's early days to, to say is, is the consolidation that we're starting to see a healthy consolidation, but, but, I, but I think it is. And then I suppose we've also seen pipeline trimming and people be more focused on later stage assets with key catalysts in there. Have you any comments or any reflections on that from what you saw again, second half of last year and moving into 23? Yeah, I, I think companies are becoming more realistic about, you know, the cash they've had and, and how they can best leverage that in, in creating value and creating value, not just for shareholders, but for patients as well. And I think we're seeing reprioritization of pipelines. I think we're seeing some cost cutting. Um, and I, I think companies are being realistic that within the cash runway they have, uh, they need to if they're going to engage investor interest, they're going to have to be able to generate some data or learning that really advances, um, you know, with, what they're what they're prosecuting. So, you know, overall, I w- I would say I'm encouraged as well by you know companies being more realistic about um, the number of things that they can prosecute, you know, what's within their bandwidth and what's not, um, and and you know to you know illustratively. If you've got 
you know, 50 million of cash and you've got a, a large rheumatoid arthritis trial in front of you, that might not be the best use of your cash. Um, and, and so we're seeing those decisions being made. And, and I'm encouraged that there's a lot of rational thought going into what companies are choosing to prosecute as they head into 2023. So let's shift from that on that note, you know, when you look at, you know, capital clinical trials, uh, really being able to fund them through to completion and a little bit beyond, you know, when you don't have the capital, either you're going to have to fundraise um, and, you know, the expectation being obviously that people see the value proposition, um, you will license or you're acquired, right? Are you seeing the licensing deals and the large pharma biotech acquisitions that again, we'd all kind of hoped would filter through last year? but didn't seem to quite materialize. There were some companies where they, they indicated publicly that there were discussions going on or the market was predicting that they were going to get acquired that actually didn't seem to convert. Yeah, look, I, I think, um, you know, we do expect M&A activity to pick up in 2023. Historically, when we look across the cycles of biotech, uh, there's typically a lag from you know, reaching a nadir on the downturn. And, and when you see M&A activity pick up, and it's typically on a, on a six to 12 month lag, uh, we, we did see, I think, roughly 13 deals in the second half of 2022 and roughly 50 billion in deal value. Uh, I do expect that to pick up. Uh, you know, large pharma, by our estimate, has 800 billion or more in capital to deploy around M&A. Uh, they're facing increasingly nearer-term patent clips, um, and there's a lot of attractive opportunities out there for them to look at. And my general sense is there was a lot of looking in 2022 for things that will be executed on in, in 2023. Uh, I don't think, you know, farm is necessarily looking for, you know, bargain basement valuations. They want, want valuations that are more reasonable, and I think we've got there, but they're, they're looking for quality. And so they're not necessarily looking to sort through, you know, distressed situations. That being said, there is, you know, within the companies that have distressed valuations and distressed cash runways, a lot of value. And, and I do think there's, you know, some curating of, of those opportunities by a large number of folks and, you know, large farmer included. Uh, and I, I think that could be a solution for some of the companies that are more in a more difficult situation. But, you know, the, the short answer is I do expect M&A activity to pick up in 2023, and it's largely informed by looking at prior cycles and the timing of when M&A picks up relative, you know, to the, the downturn. It always feels, though, it's a little bit of a tough decision, you know, when you're sitting with a company that may be approached from an acquisition standpoint, from a valuation that where valuation is depressed, you look at the valuation of the company, you're looking at the market and you're trying to predict, is the market actually going to pick up and are you selling you know, at the wrong time, at the bottom of the cycle and just before it ticks up or actually now, is now the right time to actually sell? Um, you know, Are there things that people should be looking at to kind of tell them where the market actually is um, and whether we're going to see a recovery in Q1, Q2 sort of timeframe? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, look, it, it, the worst downturn we had was during the dot-com bust. And after the sequencing of the human genome, uh, you know, one to four, we had a 30 month gap in equity issuance. You know, we're approaching 24 months. I, I think it's very reasonable to say that if we get to mid 2023 and we haven't seen substantial recovery, 
you know, I'll be shocked because we'll then be pushing beyond what we saw during the dot-com bust. I think we've got a much healthier sector. We're so far ahead of where we were 20-plus years ago in understanding biology. Um, we've got much more efficient drug development processes. We've got drugs that are uh, have much more profound and predictable benefits. Uh, so it, and my sense is that investors have been sitting on their hands, you know, long enough. And and our sense is that there is legitimate interest in, you know, getting back in, so to speak. Um, now, if if you're a company that is in that group where, you know, you're you're in a distressed value situation, I think you have to look at the milestones in front of you, the proximity of those milestones, how meaningful they will be to investors. And, um, and, and what's the runway you have, you know, around that. And, and you might say, well, this is as good as it's going to get. We've got 12 months of cash. We've got this data point coming up in February. We think it's going to be meaningful. Whatever the reaction in our stock is, that's as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that's got to be the basis. And if you look at that and say, gee whiz, I don't think we're going to get much of a pop you know, what we're hearing from investors in terms of expectations, we don't think we're going to be able to provide, then you might have to look at alternatives. So as you look at companies, you know, today, um, and the probability or possibility of a turnaround in the first, second quarter, you know, it is, it's all really dependent on, you know, obviously investor interest, right? And their willingness to step back into the market, put their toes back in and effectively start deploying capital. Been a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines that really has been has not been deployed um, effectively due to inflation, losing, losing value, right? Yep. What's the inflection point from an investor standpoint where their investors or LPs either are going to look to claw back or are really going to force them to get back into the market? Are we at that pain point now? You know, reset, you know, as you think about overall returns from a fund, so you're back at zero, right? You may, you hope now you're going to do well in 23 and realize a bonus or return on it. You know, are, are people there, or are they still actually pretty jaded, still very cautious, you know? Um, is no, I, I, I think we're there. You know, I, I, I think we're there, Ness. And, and I would say we're there um, not just because of the passage of time and, and you've been sitting on cash for, for too long, but there's some really positive things that have happened. Uh, we're, you know, if, if you think about the cycles that you and I have been through, again, if you go back to the sequencing of the human genome, you know, it was would these new identification of new targets and enhanced genetic understanding, you know, de-risk early to mid-stage drug development. You fast forward to today, and we've had all this innovation stemming from that early work, and now the question is commercial. Can can these precision medicines, these gene therapies, these cell therapies be commercially successful. And and what and I've had more that I've had many investors come back to me and say, gee, did you realize that Yascarda is a, on a one point two to one point five billion dollar run rate? We're seeing the first blockbuster cell therapy. We're getting multiple gene therapy approval. And what I would say is a better framework for executing on commercial. We're seeing, you know, pricing adopted uh, in a risk-sharing model where, you know, you've got for the, the burden of the disease pricing up to three or four million. And, and, and there being acceptance of that given the burden of disease that's being addressed. Uh, immuno-oncology and cancer vaccines specifically, we've had uh, failures since 
Coley's mixture in 1897. We had a, a striking result from uh, Keynote 294, I think it was, or 942, where a personalized mRNA cancer vaccine in Keytruda improved relapse-free survival in melanoma. Uh, we've seen the amyloid hypothesis get validated a second time and renewed enthusiasm around neurodegenerative diseases more broadly. Uh, we've seen in immunology um, some groundbreaking results and ulcerative colitis around targeting TL1A. And we've seen other other targets like PIC2 uh, generate a lot of enthusiasm. And so that's me highlighting some of the things that I thought were really exciting. And, and NASH as a category mm-hmm. that everyone thought was going to fail forever, succeeding, having a success in NASH at year end. Uh, as a reminder that even when you have multiple disappointments, the by, you know, learnings that we're developing from those disappointments advance us forward. And so it's not just me reflecting on those, but feedback I'm seeing from investors suggests that this is resonating with them. We're seeing the commercial model bear out with cell therapy at the tip of the sword. We're seeing the approvals with the gene therapy starting to come. We're seeing some categories that were previously viewed as, you know, untenably risky showing success. I, I think that's all going to point to people jumping in in 2023 and hopefully early 2023. So to that end, I think, look, the examples are great, right? From UC to NASH to cell therapy. Um, You know, if you look and say, okay, from a prediction standpoint, where are the places you think the next hits are going to be? Is this this the wave crashing over or is it just at the tip of the the wave? No, I think it's just, the tip of the wave. I, I think we've got to the point, you know, if you, if you look at the success with the personalized mRNA vaccine plus a PD-1 inhibitor, that's going to, I have to believe, uh, generate a lot of interest in, you know, that area beyond just, just melanoma. Mm-hmm. I think in cell therapy where over the last few years, there's been the lament that we're restricted to hematologic malignancies and maybe narrow indications, we're starting to see some progress in targeting solid tumors. Uh, We're now starting to see that cell therapy move into um, autoimmune disease with with the CAR-T regs as an example. Um, So, you know, I I think there are some areas that have been out of favor over the last few years as part of this downturn, cell therapy, gene therapy in particular. I think those could come back in favor. Uh, immuno-oncology has been out of favor. That could come back in favor. And there's some areas that have held up well that I think will continue to hold up well, and that's precision oncology, immunology, um, and, um, you know, and and, and again, with neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's, I think we're seeing renewed interest there too. So, you know, those are some of the areas that that I I would point to. Gene editing, you know, I mentioned in particular, I think there's a, a real, real rapid pace of innovation there. And um, I, I think that's, that's an area that um, we see a lot of interest when we talk to investors. You know, from a commercial standpoint and opportunity, you know, the, the examples you give are spot on. But, you know, you look at things like the Inflation Reduction Act. Is that positive, negative in your mind? Like, is, does that provide clarity and some sense of, okay, something's been done so we can move on? Or... Does it actually cloud the sort of future as we think about overall reimbursement approaches? 
I, I, I think it provides clarity, quite honestly. I, I think the worst thing for biotech is uncertainty, and I, I think that provides some clarity and companies can adapt around it. Um, you know, it always strikes me that if you think about Europe as um, as sort of a counterpoint to what happens when we put, you know, more restrictive pricing constraints on, on the drug industry, um, you know, we still see biotech innovation and pricing holding up better than traditional pharma as an example. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I do think that this gives us some guidelines, roughly, and some certainty on, on how to approach drug development. It's going to create in some, you know, as we get certainty around um, how the uh, IRA is going to get implemented, I, I think companies will adapt. Um, and again, I think we're getting into a situation in 2023 where for investors, it provides that certainty. It had it had been an overhang and, and now they can make an investment with eyes wide open. I, I think that's helpful. For companies that, let's shift to the private market for a, for a minute. You know, obviously you, you've got to be seeing a lot of companies on the private side that are trying to determine, you know, we went out, we did a mass financing, let's say, you know, at a 21 into 22. And we'd hoped or assumed that we'd be able to IPO. We may have even confidentially filed. We've withdrawn or pulled. Um, are, wh what's the sort of general sentiment out there from investors and overall ECM as you, as you look at those companies and, and trying to figure out, is now the time to go? And I want to talk a little bit about valuation, valuation expectations, you know, to that. But just generally, what is the sort of sentiment about private companies and the potential for IPO markets now? Yeah, so we, you know, we um, did some analysis internally and just looked at overall new equity issuance uh, modeling and, and looking looking at predictors of, you know, the IPO market in 2023. And uh, we, we expect to see, you know, an uptick in new issuance in 2023 overall. When we model it out and back into what does it mean for biopharma, you know, our estimate is, We'll see roughly four and a half billion to six billion in new equity issuance, and at an average size of 130 million per IPO, it's roughly you know 30 to 50 IPOs versus 10 in 2022. Mm -hmm. And so we do expect IPOs, to, the IPO market, to continue to open. Uh, when we do our best estimate of who's queued up, we come up with roughly you know, 60 to 65 companies, and that's just based on their last round and who the investors were and, uh, you know, some of the feedback we get from management. But we think there's roughly 60 to 65 companies queued up. And when we look at those companies, interestingly, you know, two-thirds of them are still preclinical. Um, there's probably half of those that have INDs targeted for 2024, um, and they, they may need to do uh, an additional top-up round to get closer to that. And there's another half that are targeting INDs for 2023, and that might be more realistic. But, you know, the bottom line is our modeling suggests that the IPO market for biotech should improve significantly in 2023. Um, and, you know, that's 30 to 50 by our best estimate. We think there's roughly 60 or so mm -hmm. queued up. Um, and we, we profiled those companies that have a few thoughts there. Um, the earlier private um, market, I would say what we're seeing thematically is um, – you know, these companies have been private longer than investors had expected, and they're having to make tough decisions on, 
you know, where they're going to continue to support and, and, and where not. Um, in terms of additional rounds of financing, we're typically seeing, you know, flat is the new up. Uh, we're hearing of down rounds, but those aren't necessarily advertised. But in general, the pre-money valuations are lower, but the size of the rounds on average are, are greater. And I, I think that reflects the reality of, you know, needing to have more capital raised at more reasonable valuations to um, have a healthier runway. So, I, you know, I think that's, that's the environment I'm seeing on the private side. Ultimately, we think the public markets have to pull out the private market. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, you know, investors that, you know, we used to refer to as crossover investors, and we don't necessarily hear that term, but investors that do public private investing, they're, they've been leaning more public. And I think, you know, as the public markets recover, you know, you may get a leaning back towards late private and that, that helps the whole situation on the private side. Would you look at that as being an indicator that we're now getting into a point where that value valuation balance has been reset and that there's now value back in the private side for these later stage companies? Yeah, I don't think we've got there yet. I don't think we've got a full resetting, and I, I think that has to happen. And again, that's going to be a function of recovery of public market valuations, um, and and also, you know, on the private side, a little bit of realism. If you're if you're doing your your next round, um, being reasonable about about the step up. So I don't know that we've got you know a full of uh, reconciliation between public valuations and private valuations, but we're heading in that direction. I think it's going to be a function of a bit of give and take on, on both sides of that. Looking at the fundamentals, and I don't know if you've done this analysis, but looking at the fundamentals of those 60-ish companies that are sort of in the, you know, in the ready to or preparing for IPO by your estimates, um, looking at the fundamentals of them versus the fundamentals of the companies that went public in the last public window or IPO window, are you seeing major differences between them? So you talk about a time to IND. I think that that's been compressed, right? This next batch, one would expect that it actually should be a lot tighter, a lot closer to IND, if not already in the clinic. But overall profile for the companies themselves, are there any themes that are starting to emerge around that? You know, I, I, I would just say, Ness, over the last few years, um, I looked at a lot of companies that were looking to go public, and they were great PowerPoint presentations, uh, but not a lot out. And, and it, there wasn't necessarily the teams or the assets or the timeline or the plan. And what strikes me when we look at what we consider the 60 or 65 private companies queued up to go public is it's a, it's a crop of really good quality companies and good quality science, uh, clear progress that's been made over the last 12 to 18 months, really strong management teams, uh, a clear plan. Uh, we've seen a number of these companies execute really well around, you know, st- strategic collaborations uh, to really put themselves in an optimal position of strength. Uh, you know, one of the themes we, we really have pushed is, you know, look for companies that might have adjacent or complementary technologies and make access of that. And, and, and you know, back on the peer-to-peer um, collaboration side, we we're seeing this crop of companies um, being a lot better positioned to be public companies than I would say the class of 2020 or 2021. Um, and even, you know, with 40 to, uh, of the 60 or so preclinical, uh, they're at a much more advanced preclinical stage. And I think they have things in place that 
put them put them in a good position for IND clearances and um, you know a quick start on on clinical development. So that's that's a lot of words to say. I think the class of 2023, as we look at it, is a much healthier class than the class of 2020 and 2021. Overlaying valuation then on top of that, I mean, you know, one can't help but think that valuations got heady not only on the public side, but also on the private side. Public sort of resets itself in real time, and there's no real control on that. Private, not necessarily the case, depending on sort of financing needs for the company. You know, as you look at those 60, 65 companies, the valuation metrics that they left their last round on versus their, their public comparators. Are we still going to have to see a reset there? Are you, you know, should investors still be expecting some, some sort of step up 1.2, 1.3 versus let's say 1.3, 1.5 from the historicals, you know, where, how do you think this, this bit's actually going to play out just from a valuation metric standpoint? Yeah, it's hard to see the step ups in the first half of 23, you know, maybe as we get, a, you know, a, a fulsome recovery, um, that again, we're optimistic for. You, you could start to see step ups. Um, you know, as 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 we look at the distribution of post money valuations, there's roughly a third that have post money values below 300 million. There's about a third that are between 300 to 900 million, and and then there's another third that are you know closer to a billion plus. And 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 you know and you know I, I would say that distribution is much more reasonable than what we might have seen in 2020 and 2021. Um, and, and again, I, I think when you go company by company, I think there's, and you look at peer valuations on the public side, I, I think there's a better case to be made for upside for, for this, you know, class of 2023 IPO candidate. Um, but again, I, I, I think um, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny evaluations as companies go public, given what we've just gone through for the last few years. And so I, I, I wouldn't be looking at, at step up, step up um, in the IPO, but rather IPO to have a public currency to create value that, that then can get recognized down the road. I don't, I don't know that the, the big step ups on the IPO are going to be the way you realize value for, for these later stage privates. Well, you know, certainly looking at some of the companies that IPO'd, you know, in 22, the insider participation is much higher than what you would normally, what we've historically seen in the last few years. You know, that, that in, in some respects, that almost insulates with respect to valuation from a step up into IPO. And the assumption is, right, you're getting enough capital in, so you through some major catalytic events, your public market, then you're actually looking up two things, market response to your data as you're pushing it out in there. And you're looking at overall sort of macro sentiment in the marketplace that's 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 rising all boats, right? Um, yep. You know, from a reserve standpoint for investors on the private side, are you still looking at you know, or should the assumption still be out there that as we look into 23, those reserves to support that IPO and participate is actually still going to have to be on the relatives high side, and that really you are playing it's it's a financing. It is not. It's not traditionally an exit. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. I think as we look across, you know, the different private rounds, Series A through, you know, C in some cases and uh, into IPO, I think what we're seeing largely is um, rounds that are, you know, all, almost exclusively um, driven by insiders that are really just trying to get the company, um, you know, down the road to a healthier point. 
we, you know, the, the goal typically is to try and bring in one or two net new investors. And, and we're seeing companies have some success with that. But in bringing in those one or two investors, that's not going to be the basis for a substantial step up. So I, I think the way you characterized it is the right way to characterize it, at least as we think about things going into 2023. Does that change how we how people should think then about things like testing the waters? Thing, you know, is 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 it becoming far more directed in that outreach to very specific investors to be that one or two add-ons to just again get some additional fresh capital in? But you know, effectively, insiders are turning around saying we're going to carry this through. Yeah, I, th- I think that you know the testing the waters process is helpful um, in the current environment. Um, to really give companies a legitimate basis for assessing whether they're ready to go public, you know. So part of part of it is is trying to secure those one to two net new investors, and part of it is actually answering the questions that no one really wanted to ask a few years ago, and that is, you know, are are investors embracing us as a as a public entity? So. You know, I think there's a lot of good feedback that comes from the TTW process. And I think the goal in the current environment is if you can get one to two net in new investors, that, that, that's a win. Sentiment is, is, is an important aspect. You know, as you think about people, again, stepping back into the market, you, know, you talk about the new data that's come through and how that's opening up new areas. But the overall emotional sentiment of investors are you know are they beaten down? Are they still licking wounds somewhat, or actually are they now re-energized and invigorated to actually be stepping back in? I think they're I think they're still licking wounds and cautiously stepping back in. But again, I think part of the benefit of and I mentioned this earlier of having a shift towards more stocks trading up on positive events uh, than trading down. Um, has them more constructive. Uh, we, we've seen, you know, some big gains around uh, data and some of the categories we mentioned, like Nash and immunology. Um, that I think it's it's wetting their appetite to come back in. Um, and um, you know, I, I I would say, you know, the healthy part of what's happened over the last two years is is I think investors have a bit more of a eyes wide open perspective on you know, where they're going to invest. But I, but I do think that as we're seeing more of a shift to positive reactions to data and we're seeing some, you know, um, transformational events generating, you know, outsized returns, I think investors, you know, are interested in, in, in getting involved in, in the right opportunities. Um, I don't think we're, and we shouldn't, think about momentum investing off of sentiment. I, I think investors are going to step back in 2023 in a really, um, deliberate fashion and um, be very selective in, in, in what they invest in. And it may create, you know, what you know, a, a further, uh, you know, accentuation of what we have right now. We've got a dynamic of the haves and the have-nots. And the haves have access to capital and the have-nots have more challenges in accessing capital. And, and that, you know, I think that selectivity, continued selectivity of investors is going to focus on the companies that are in a healthier situation. I think the companies that are in more of a distressed situation are, are going to have to be more creative. But, but again, where I'm optimistic there too is, is that work is getting done. 
And, you know, when you, when we say use the word investor, you know, I suppose there's kind of two, I would classify, right, as there's kind of two buckets out there generally, right? So you've got the sort of fundamental investor, and then you've got the more generalist, um, you know, uh, market-driven investor. Looking at 23 and the recycling of capital and, you know, general capital more stepping in, what should we be looking for on that front? And, you know, as you look at the companies that need to raise for the actual from fundamental investors, is there enough capital and interest sitting around the table to actually be able to cover that? Yeah, I, I think I think there is. And again, you know, I think the the dedicated investors, um, you know, indicate to us that they're looking to get involved in a more meaningful way. I don't think we're at a point in the cycle where I expect the generalist investors to come in. Um, you know, I, I I think historically where we've seen the generalists come in is around paradigm shifting results. As you know, we talked about last time the Avastin mm-hmm. event in 2004, where it really got investors and generalists um, interested in precision oncology. I, I think we've got a lot of those potential events lining up that could draw in the generalist investors if, if we see continued success around personalized vaccines, if we see continued success in gene editing. If some of the commercial launches of the recently approved gene therapies go better than expected, uh, if we see a pickup in M&A activity, uh, if we have success in solid tumors, I, I, I think that's and it's and it's replicable. I think that's going to draw in generalist investors. In the absence of that, I still think there's enough capital on the sidelines with the dedicated investors to really uh, help support the the sector um, and and help the sector trade up in 2023. So let's be negative here, okay? So 2023, what's lurking, you know, that we can't see that kind of is keeping you up at night? What is there that actually could be, you know, not the Black Swan event, but that could actually come in and really kind of dampen all of this down that, you know, is on people's radars, maybe in the peripheral, but is actually there? You know, the, the, the biggest open-ended question, there's obviously things could get worse in the, the macro environment. Uh, if, if you have events, either macroeconomic or geopolitical events, um, that create a risk-off environment, Bi- biotech's not going to perform well in those risk-off situations, but it's hard to predict worse scenarios than what we've already experienced. You know, I would say the one open question is really FDA. And that is, uh, we've seen a lot of FDA scrutiny around CMC and manufacturing, for, particularly mm-hmm. for cell therapy and gene therapy. Uh, we've seen, you know, a, a large number of, of partial holds and clinical holds as FDA's tried to work through CMC issues. Um, I, I think there's been some debate around the Alzheimer's approval uh, for Adjahelm and how FDA is going to handle that. And, you know, ultimately, FDA is a gatekeeper to all this innovation we've just been talking about. And so, you know, the thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, does FDA turn more hawkish? Um, it, it's hard to know. Um, but certainly, uh, we've seen as we've had advances in some of these newer technologies, FDA has also stepped up and, and, and is asking a lot of questions. and. You know, it's harder to know how fulsome and adequate will the answers to those FDA questions be. So uh, I, I think the 
the, the regulatory environment is, is probably the thing that keeps me up at night because it's, it's the one where, you know, I wouldn't say we've seen hawkishness. We've just seen, you know, FDA showing a lot of scrutiny towards some of the newer innovations and really wanting to understand, you know, things like gene editing and, and, and how we assess off, you know, off target editing and, and, and cell therapies and, and how we, you know, can confirm that we've got a reproducible product. And as you start thinking about personalized therapies, you know, what are the release criteria around that? So, you know, it, it's, um, it's really the regulatory environment that if I was to say, you know, where could there be some downside risk, it would be, you know, if FDA becomes a bit more hawkish towards the, um, you know, the whole drug cycle. As you talk about novel modalities, approaches out there that are sort of really maturing now. So, you know, you talk about cellular therapeutics, you talk about gene therapy, obviously gene editing coming through, and nucleic acid-based drugs. Um, you, you were trained as a physician, right? You've been out doing sales, so you know what interacting with physicians, prescribing physicians actually is like, right? Is there are we is there a point where we're we're getting to that you know both from a physician's ability from bandwidth time you know an engagement that you know any of these new modalities kind of getting that uptake getting that education in place and getting that broader acceptance are we facing some challenges on that side or do you actually think that that's really not not a concern as we think about it and I bring so you know I was talking to Jeremy Levin um, you know. Uh, media past chair right of bio and we were talking a little bit about people's understanding of these new technologies especially in light of what happened with the covid vaccine um you know do you have any concern or any thoughts about you know our projected uptake within the marketplace for these modalities versus the actual reality of it yeah i, I mean i think um i mean i do i i always felt if you look at gene therapy as an example um, the expectations around uptake a few years ago were, were unrealistic. And I think we've had a resetting of expectations around commercial uptake of all these new modalities. And, and it's always helpful to have a more realistic lens on how quickly these uh, new modalities are going to be adopted. But at the same time, I'm also seeing a lot of progress in terms of a high, you know, the recognition of a need for a high touch model and the implementation for you know, that high-touch model. Uh, and, and I'll give um, sickle cell disease as an example. Uh, sickle cell disease is, an, is, an, is a category where we've seen a lot of innovation. We've seen some new drug approvals. It's been a category where, you know, commercializing um, drugs to what's been a, a disenfranchised patient population has been challenging. And we've seen companies adopt a very high-touch model to really, you know, go beyond the prescribers and go right to the patients and the advocacy groups and the payers. And um, I, I think there's uh, a more realistic view of what's required to really effectively distribute these new technologies than there was a few years ago. I think when we got the initial CAR-T results, you see a 90% CR rate in acute leukemia and think, you know, people are going to just adopt this because the data is so good, but it doesn't work that way. You've got to have relationships with the centers. You've got to have the supply chain in place. You've got to have, you know, the reimbursement in place. You've got to have the prescribers understanding how to, you know, use these new modalities. And so 
I think we're at a different point today in terms of the readiness of the markets to accept these new technologies. There's still a lot of work to be done, but at least there's a recognition that these new modalities require a high touch. And it's a high touch of education, not only with the patients on the advocacy, advocacy groups, but with the prescribers as well. You know, just on the point from an advocacy standpoint, you know, and I'm I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. So on the advocacy standpoint, you know, I think there's been a great mobilization of advocacy groups as you look at interactions with the FDA and moving things towards approval and kind of gaining momentum from a patient standpoint to get it through. I think there's some cases where, you know, that effectively has gone full circle and not necessarily been as positive ultimately as one would have hoped, you know, you talk about the potential for the FDA becoming more hawkish is, you know, is there the danger that we'll, we may see that actually that hawkishness kind of move over into that, into that part of the, the communication with the FDA, you know, as you look at patient advocacy and support for the approval of a drug? Yeah, I, look, I, I, I think patient advocacy is something that's very important. Um, in, in, in terms of the relationship with FDA. And I think from everything I've seen over the last 20 plus years, FDA's um, you know, embracing of that advocacy, I, I think it's helpful when, it, when, it, it, when there's a public forum you know, for the advocacy. And, and you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to sickle cell disease as, as, as a category where I think one of the things that was very helpful was back in I think it was November of 2018, there was a joint workshop that FDA and ASH held, um, and they addressed a lot of pressing issues around that category. And they did it in an open forum format, and the focus was on endpoints for approval of sickle cell drugs. And so, you know, that was advocacy that I think helped result in that public forum. And I think we see, need to see more of that. I think the more you bring this out into the into the public light, uh, I think the more more productive it is. Great. Well, you know, <laughs> rainbows, roses, unicorns, 2023 is going to be a good year. Let's go. So, <laughs> you know, look, I'm with you. I think that, you know, the market's at a point now, and I think the, the level um, of people sitting on the sidelines, we've gotten to a point where people now want to get, mo- get mobile again, active valuations are attractive. And I tend to agree with you on the financing side of things that, you know, the companies that need to raise, as long as they're being pragmatic and they're, they're putting the right story and the right positioning across, you know, should be able to raise. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic about 23 also. Um, but I'd hoped, you know, to be honest with you, that Q4 of 22, that we would have started to see some of this playing out and, and we, didn't do, we didn't see that. So I think my hesitancy... Um, you know, maybe more on that, that I, you know, I thought that we'd see some signals in Q4 and we didn't see them. Um, so, you know, it's really going to be this early part of Q1. You know, are we really going to see people getting more active? Are we going to see data points that are going to come through that will continue to actually drive uh, overall interest in the market? And can companies continue to actually differentiate themselves? Because, you know, you talk about what 650 companies out there that's a lot of companies being able to differentiate yourself and rise above what is a lot of chatter and background noise, I think is becoming more and more problematic for these companies. Yeah. And, 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 and no doubt. And I, you know, I started it by saying um, there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, I'm optimistic about the momentum of the work that's being done. Um, that's 
directed towards improving the health of the sector overall. I think there's been some learnings over this downturn that put us in a healthier position as we go into 2023. Uh, a lot of us will be out here in San Francisco um, next week, and um, I'll look forward to seeing a lot of, a lot of folks. And it's raining, so bring an umbrella. But I don't, I don't, I don't view that as a uh, a sign of of uh, of the year. I wouldn't look at the weather here in San Francisco as a sign of the year. I, I remain optimistic, but but like you, I, I'm pragmatic. It, it, it's going to take some work. I, you know, I think it's, things are going to progress in the first half of, of 23, and you know, I, I think by by the middle of the year, we're going to be in a much healthier position. I'm going to be uncharacteristically glass half full. I think this is a cleansing rain that's coming through to cleanse us all and get us ready for a bumper 23. I think that's a great, great point to finish on now. <laughs> Jim, as always, absolutely phenomenal to talk to you. Hopefully I can entice you to come back, you know, at the second half and we can look at what happened in the first half and kind of think about the, the second half. And uh, hopefully we're talking very positive things at that point. Look, look forward to it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. See you at JPM. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 